This is an ABC podcast. Hello, this is Coronacast, a daily podcast all about the coronavirus. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Friday the 16th of April 2021. And when we're in a pandemic, Norman, there are a lot of really complicated medical decisions that get made by our expert committees nationally. And most of that happens behind closed doors. And maybe there's a good argument for that. It's complicated. Perhaps the public could be spooked by some of the scenarios that get put around. But in the States, it's different. A lot of these decisions are made in a public forum. Uh, For example, they have uh, committees there about uh, advice on vaccinations. Those committees' workings are public. Should we have the same thing here in Australia? Well, we absolutely should for the purposes of transparency. Um, we've got no idea what the HPP, HPC, PPC, I always get that wrong, but the Principal Health Committee talks about how they make the decisions. We've got no idea how the what, what the evidence the infection control expert group rely on, which presumably allows a medical registrar, Princess Alexandra, following their guidelines to get infected by a COVID-19 patient. And we don't know what evidence ATAGI, the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation, relies upon um, because the deliberations aren't public. Well, the reason we're talking about this is because the US CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunisation Practices were meeting yesterday about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Yes, and it was entirely in the open and the slides that were presented to the meeting were, were, were in public. And in fact, we'll put those slides on our website, on the Coronacast website, and you can see what what deliberations they made. And interestingly, their pause, which they say is going to be for seven to fourteen days, is not a permanent pause. It's giving them it's giving them time to actually look at the risks according to age group, do a proper risk-benefit analysis so that they've got the right decision-making. They still consider the Janssen vaccine, or also called Johnson & Johnson vaccine, to be an important part of ensuring vaccine equity because, in fact, the, the Janssen vaccine in the United States was being used for disadvantaged groups where there's awkward booking processes, it's difficult to come forward, and they are underpowered. So the privileged and well-off in America are getting vaccinated at high rates. But when you look at the disadvantaged populations, it's, it's, it's very low, around about 20%. And the Johnson vaccine, Johnson and Johnson vaccine, was seen as a solution for that—a single dose vaccine where you don't have to get people to come back for a second dose. So it's still considered very important. So it's not that they're more worried about it that they're putting a pause on it. It's more that they want to make the right decision in terms of restriction and the risk-benefit analysis. Because remember, there's still COVID around, plenty of it in the United States, and the risk of a you know of an uptick is significant. And one of the things that is often a criticism when people are hesitant about vaccines is that. They maybe feel like they're not getting the full story. So increasing that level of transparency can be a way to reassure people that all these checks and balances are truly in place. Yes. And when you actually, you know, people are free to go into this slide presentation that we'll put up on the Chronicast website. And you'll see that when you actually see the results, it's much less scary you know, it just tells you what the story is and the pre-existing conditions, for example. So, for example, for example nobody in these six women, and they're all women, had a, a blood clotting problem. A pre-existing blood clotting problem. A pre-existing blood clotting problem, thank you. They all, in this case, had cerebral venous, venous sinus thrombosis. That's a cerebral vein thrombosis. But some also, and there was a publication in the New England Journal, which we'll also put on our website, um, of a woman who presented, a 48-year-old woman who presented in Omaha, really very, very sick with the central vein thrombosis, clots in her abdomen as well, and really quite ill. But again, just 
really being open about what is happening here. You know, it's a very small number at this point and hard to generalise, but at least you get the story. And so they're going towards a similar direction to Australia in terms of the groups that may or may not be recommended to have the uh, viral vector vaccines that we spoke about yesterday. Yes, and the only they've got Astra, but the one that they've got on the shelf already being produced, although there's been a bit of a lull because they had a problem with a manufacturing facility, is Johnson. They've got Johnson in, in millions of doses, and when they get their manufacturing organised properly um, and safely, then they'll have a lot more, and it's a potentially very valuable vaccine. So they'll, they'll put restrictions on it. They're just wondering what the restrictions are going to be, and they want time to actually think it out. The other thing about vaccines and transparency that we really don't have a lot of clarity on in Australia is just how much vaccine is available and how long the timeframes are from something being manufactured to when it's going to be available for one of us to receive. Yes. I mean, what what I'm hearing from sources is that, yes, the numbers are being published, but they don't necessarily believe them. There's still a strong view that we're holding back too many doses for second doses. In other words, there's 12 weeks between the first and second dose and some they're keeping back too much Astra vaccine when they could actually be releasing it to market. Pfizer is a bit different. It's a three-week difference. And if you're not guaranteed your supply, then you probably do want to keep some of the Pfizer back. But there's a strong feeling that we're not getting entire transparency on how many doses are being withheld and a feeling that there's too many being withheld. And the other thing is, which I wasn't really aware of, and, and, and I suspect the government's been overly optimistic in this, is that while CSL might produce a million doses and the numbers are getting right up there, so the CSL is doing well with its production, is that it actually takes a, a month for those million doses to reach market because they've got to be tested, batch tested, and Astra's got to test them, and they've got to be put in vials and delivered. So, in fact, what they're talking about is a million, presumably they're talking about a million doses ready coming out of the vat, but not a million doses ready for market. Eventually, when they catch up, it will be a million doses a week, but the million doses that go to the market will be a million doses that were produced a month beforehand um, and eventually get to market. And I wasn't fully aware of that either. And again, that's the sort of information that people should know and and they'll understand why the, you, you, why there is a bit of a delay. But there probably are a lot of doses in Australia that could be put in people's arms that aren't being through excessive caution. Yeah, a bit more transparency around that. Just the scale of the ramp up would help manage expectations a bit. But the good news is that there is definitely a really strong demand for vaccination in Australia. Yes, a lot of general practices are reporting that there was a, a dip last week when people heard about the vaccine story with Astra, but it's come back up again. And lots of general practices are reporting demand high uh, for appointments. And then in other good news, we talk a lot about Israel on this podcast, and it's partly because they had such a they've got such a good healthcare system that captures a lot of data, which means it's really easy to see then if things are working or not. And they had a, a fast early vaccine rollout. And it looks like with the vaccine coverage that they've been able to achieve, they're really seeing those infection numbers drop dramatically. Yes. Uh, since mid-January, the 98% fewer cases, 93% fewer critically ill and 87% fewer deaths. So it's, um, it's probably getting to the point in Israel where they can remove the remaining restrictions. Although... They are, if you look at the immunisation rate, they are finding it difficult to rise above 60-odd percent um, because of vaccine hesitancy. And really, vaccine hesitancy is quite significant in Israel 
um, because of ultra-religious groups. So you've got fundamentalist Jewish groups who are against immunization. There's nothing that I know of in Jewish law in the five books of Moses that tell you or the associated books that tell you you're not allowed to be immunized. But for some reason, these fundamentalist groups are against it, which is why I've had measles outbreaks, measles outbreaks in the United States. And so it's a real problem in Israel getting that next level up and getting beyond that vaccine hesitancy or even vaccine rejection in those groups. Well, Norman, it's Friday, which means Quickfire Friday, and there's plenty of our audience members who've sent in questions, so are you ready to answer some? Let's go. This is something that a lot of people have been asking about. With the blood clotting problems that are associated with AstraZeneca in very rare cases, can they not simply recommend a daily low dose of aspirin following the jab, um, like you sometimes see prescribed for cardiac and stroke patients? It sounds sensible, but the experts are strongly recommending against this. And the reason is that this is not a normal clotting situation. First of all, it's controversial whether aspirin itself helps when you've got venous thrombosis of the regular kind. And secondly, aspirin can also cause hemorrhage. And in a significant proportion of the patients who have this immune reaction to the platelets, this thrombotic thrombocytopenia, they also get hemorrhage. Because remember, what they've got here is a double whammy. They've got sticky platelets that cause clotting, but they've not got very many platelets, and you need platelets for blood clotting. So the blood, the platelets, this is a par- huge paradox. So the platelets are being chewed up by the, an- the antibody effect. The platelets that remain are causing serious clotting, which leaves even fewer platelets left. And... Because you've got fewer platelets, you're more prone to to hemorrhage. So you get clot and hemorrhage existing at the same time. And aspirin can increase the risk of hemorrhage. So you've got to be really careful what you do here. McHugh is asking, our doctor is vaccinating with a 16-week gap. Will this still offer an effective cover? Well, your doctor shouldn't be vaccinating with a 16-week gap. The TGA instruction is a 12-week gap. So nobody knows what effect you're going to get from a 16-week gap. Go and find another doctor who will do it in 12 weeks. Brett asks, if we look at Israel's current case numbers, as we were just talking about, has it dropped so low because of the vaccination effort or have they already achieved some form of herd immunity? Herd immunity is a difficult concept here, but what's happening is that the Pfizer vaccine is protecting them against severe illness, which is what we're talking about here. But it's also reducing the chances of getting what's called asymptomatic infection. In other words, an infection with no symptoms. And that's what's turned that's what's turned this virus into a pandemic, is that it spreads when you don't know you've got it. So the volume of virus in the community is dropping. So whether or not it's herd immunity or just the fact that there's that because there are fewer susceptible people getting the virus the virus numbers are dropping in the community. That's probably more that's what's going on. But it's a, it's, it's a, it's a moot point. It's more that there's less virus going around. And finally, Gordon asks, will my body let me know if I'm getting blood clots after the AstraZeneca vaccination? Your body certainly will. And it happens not day one where you can feel a bit crap. It happens day four or afterwards. So you get new symptoms, like headache, blood vision, abdominal pain, that sort of thing after day four, up to about day 15, day 20, then that's when you talk to your doctor that you may have a problem. Remember, it's incredibly rare, very unlikely to happen, but it happens then, not on day one, two or three. Well, that's all we've got time for on Coronacast today and for this week. If you have a question or a comment, go to abc.net.au slash coronacast and mention Coronacast in your question so that we can find it. And we will see you on Monday. See you then.